As I mentioned last week, we are taking a little break from the Gospel of John. And uh, some of you were able to spend the weekend together at the retreat and we worked our way through, we were working our way through a section in Ephesians on biblical change, imaging God. So I thought it would be helpful for us to look at verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, one of the prison epistles that Paul writes, probably was a circular letter um, sent to the church in Ephesus as, as, as well as the other churches of Asia Minor. Ephesians chapter 4, to set the, the uh, context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 22, down to verse 32. Paul writes that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you, being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and do not sin, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then the verses we'll focus in on this morning. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him for help. O Spirit of God, you who has guided the writers of this ancient text, your servant Paul so many years ago, and guided him through this process so that the final product of what he wrote was the very Word of God. And you preserved this Word for centuries, millennia. And you are also the same One who gives us understanding, who illuminates our minds, who stirs our affections, who moves our will and obedience to God, the true and living God. And so, Spirit of the living God, work through your word this morning in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Dave Harvey, in his excellent book, When Sinners Say I Do, he has a chapter on forgiveness where he opens up with this illustration. He speaks of 
a summit that took place between several nations, an agreement to write off $40 billion of debt of these African nations in poverty. The nations represented at this 2005 G8 summit decided to cancel the debt of 18 highly indebted poor countries in Africa who qualified for this debt reduction program. It was the largest debt cancellation in history. The G8's action testified to the members' nation's ability to benevolently overlook mere economic interests. $40 billion of debt canceled. That's a whole lot of debt to be canceled. Now, I don't want to talk to you about economic globalization or anything like that, but I do want to bring to your attention the reality of God's great forgiveness in the context of the Apostle Paul seeking to motivate and encourage believers towards biblical change. This section in Ephesians is is part of a larger overall context of the book of Ephesians where the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul lays out the indicatives of what God has done for us in Christ. Chapter 1 begins in the heavenlies where Paul is praising the triune God for His work in saving us. A, A plan that began before the ages of time, before the foundations of the world that has been executed through the death of the Lord Jesus and has been applied by the sealing ministry of the Spirit of God. Chapter 2 speaks of how we were dead in trespasses and sins and God God raised us to life. And and also in chapter 2 it begins to talk about how God was bringing together Jews and Gentiles to form this one new man, this one new society of God's people. And then he elaborates on that in chapter 3. In chapter 4 it turns a corner in 4.1. Where it says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. In chapter 4 through 6, Paul turns his guns at God's people and says, this is how you are to live in light of this glorious salvation and what God is doing in making this one new society of his people. And in this this section, and really in 4.17 to 5.2, is a section on biblical change, how God has taken off this new self, this old man has died and been laid aside, and now those who are in Christ, those who have been born again, those who have been regenerated, have been made a new man in Christ, this new self. And then in in verses 25 through 32, it's a very practical section where he tells us to put off this and to put on this. Namely, that these sins that we are to put off are inconsistent with this new man. And in particular, and this is very God-centered, The Apostle Paul wants us to image God, to look like God. Notice this new new man or new self, what it looks like in verse 24. He says, this new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In, In other words, this should... Make us think back to Genesis 1.27. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. 
Okay, that was Genesis 1. But we know in Genesis 3, there's a very real sense in which the moral image of God was marred in man. That, that man no longer loved like God loved. Man no longer loved righteousness and, 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 and goodness the way that God did. And so that the image of God, while it still exists in fallen man, that moral aspect of His image is, is marred by sin and rebellion. And so in the new creation, as God does this recreative work in human beings' lives and saves them and makes them alive, He begins to reform and recraft this image to look more and more like God. Now notice it's bookended this section in 5.1 with this command. In 5.1 it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So everything in between... All these sins of putting off and the righteousness we're to put on is to image God better in our lives. Uh, For instance, in verse 25, to stop lying, but to start speaking the truth to one another. Well, God Himself is the great truth speaker, right? Uh, And then He even says in verse 26 and 27, there's a kind of righteous way that we can image God with a righteous angry anger, be angry and yet do not sin, but then we need to put off the sinful anger. And then in verse 28, let him who steals steal no longer, rather he must labor. Whoa, what do you mean? God has a job? Well, God does work. Remember, uh, even Jesus in John 5 says, I'm, I'm working until now. My Father is still working. We see the six days of creation. God saw that all that He had made, and He saw that it was very good. And notice the language of verse 28 here, that we are to work with our own hands what is good. Like God, we are to use our hands to work so that we can look at all that we have made and say, that's pretty good. And then, of course, in our speech in verses 29 and 30, not to have unwholesome speech proceed from our mouth, but words of edification, all of God's words, all of God's communication is grace that builds up and strengthens and edifies. And then this last section here in verse 31 and 32. We're going to see the negative to put off bitterness but then we're to put on a gracious disposition of forgiveness. To put off bitterness, first of all. Notice verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, all these nasty characteristics, these vices... And notice the assumption, really, of all of these vices that are listed here in verse 31. The assumption is, I know this is going to be a shocker, brace yourself, you will be sinned against. Sometimes we get surprised by, they sinned against me. Oh, I've been sinned against. I thought I was above that. You see, bitterness... Wrath, anger, clamor, all of these sins assume that you have been sinned against. And the question is, are you going to image the Almighty God in your response to that sin? Or are you going to image the old man in Adam? Let all 
bitterness be put away from you. Notice he says, let all. Let all of it be put away. And, and I think this is the idea of all kinds. That, that these different vices, they come in, in various forms. Various packages. Let all kinds of bitterness be put away from you. All kinds of wrath. All kinds of anger. All kinds of clamor. Uh, you know, there's different kinds of anger. Some, some people won't kill you, but they'll act like you're dead. Okay? Uh, some people go on fits of rage and make sure everybody knows that they're angry. It, it comes in, in slightly different packages. And the Apostle Paul is here saying, all of it, all of it needs to be taken off. Like filthy, dirty clothes. It needs to be taken off and you put, need to put on these new clothes that image the Creator. He starts out with, let all all kinds of bitterness be put away from you. Now, keep in mind, this being put away from you, it is a command. It's a present imperative. This is an ongoing thing. You have to, you have to regularly put off bitterness. Now, what is bitterness? Well, bitterness is that response to sin that kind of harbors the pain that nurses the wounds like a, a flask of whiskey that you kind of pull out every once in a while and sip from. It's, it's, it's the idea of you've been sinned against, but, but you don't move on from there. You don't extend grace to that person. You don't overlook. You don't pursue reconciliation. You just you dwell on the pain of the hurt. Bitterness. We often think of bitterness in the context of food, right? Certain foods have a kind of bitterness to them. Uh, it makes me think of hot sauce. Hot sauce inflicts a kind of pain to you, right? Um, but some people like that pain. In fact, I remember one occasion going through the grocery store and seeing two-gallon jugs of hot sauce and thinking, who on earth would go through two, a two-gallon jug of hot sauce? That means they're pouring it in everything, right? But, but the, the person takes in the hot sauce and, 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 and there's almost a, a kind of delight that takes place in the pain that they feel. And don't tell me it doesn't hurt, right? You know? Now, it may not hurt as bad as it did before you killed all your taste buds, but, but it still hurts, okay? I see you sweating, you know? You can't hide that. Well, in a similar way, this kind of bitterness, it, we, we've been hurt by somebody, we've been sinned against, and, and there's this kind of sick perversion in delighting in reminiscing about the pain that this other person has inflicted. Almost as a, as a kind of badge of honor. I endured this and this person's wrong and, and I'm just going to nurse this. Or, or perhaps another illustration. You've heard me use this. You know, It's the, the three-year-old who, who falls down and gets the boo-boo on, on his or her knee. And... It's not enough for them to move on from that injury. They have to make sure every person they come in, boo-boo, boo-boo. They want to show everybody the boo-boo. They look at the boo-boo periodically to make sure it's still down there. They reminisce about the boo-boo. They, they tell others how it happened. Uh, this is bitterness. 
And, and, and the irony of it all is that the person that it hurts the most is the person who's bitter. Imagine being stabbed by somebody in the arm in some kind of armed robbery and the thief runs off and you're there and you pull the knife out and a couple minutes go by and you just stab yourself again and you look at it and you pull it out and you just kind of stab yourself again. You say, what kind of insanity, right? Who does that? And yet persons who are bitter relive the wounds. Retrace them. Hit the replay button over and over reminding themselves of how they've been sinned against and how that person was wrong. And they tend to be the most miserable people on planet earth. It's a bad, bad place to be. Harboring bitterness in your heart towards others Rehearsing old wounds. And so friend, I ask you this morning, are you bitter? Are you nursing old wounds? Whenever you think of or see a particular person who has sinned against you, do you immediately think of what they did toward you? Bitterness also rarely rides solo. Did you notice his two cousins he's hanging out with next? Let all bitterness, in verse 31, and wrath and anger be put away from you. Now these two words, wrath and anger, they're obviously very closely connected. And there's quite a bit of overlap in the meanings of these words. But if they're is a kind of subtle distinction between the words. Wrath carries the, more the idea of a kind of explosive anger, whereas anger is more of a, a kind of a stewing. You know, we, uh, we talked about this past week and the, the difference between stewers and spewers, right? Some, some people stew in their anger and they, you know, they, they don't respond. They're just quiet and then, you know, and then eventually there's that one offense that comes and then they erupt, you know, and then the person says, well, what happened? Like, what? You're really offended over that one little thing? Well, it was no, it was the 15 other things that were in the pot that were, you know, in the pressure cooker cooking up. And then there's the spewer who just, you know, you're just kind of always walking on eggshells around them. You're hoping you didn't offend them because if you cross them in the slightest kind of way, then they're going to make sure that you know that they're angry with you. These two close cousins of bitterness, they have no place in the Christian life. They're not imaging God the way in which we're supposed to image God. They're not representing the gospel in the way that they, the believer ought to be representing the gospel. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, Paul says, be put away from you. Take it off. It's, it's filthy clothing. It, it's, it's a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God. And it needs to be put off. 
And then he also mentions in clamor in verse 30. I'm sorry, 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor be put away from you. Clamor. It's not a word that we typically use in, in English. It, it carries the idea of shouting, raising your voice. And, but in some contexts, you know, it, it actually carries a good connotation of raising your voice in prayer. And, and there's, there's nothing inherently wrong about raising your voice, but clearly the context here is raising your voice with a, with, when it's accompanied by anger and wrath and bitterness. And so the picture here is the person raising their voice and veins bulging out of the neck, face red, and this person giving you a piece of their mind. Clamor. Shouting. It's not representing the Creator very well. Imagine if the Almighty God was like that with us. But then it moves on to slander. Slander. So, slander, this is the idea of saying malicious things. And it carries the idea of communication possibly in conflict, but slander is broader than clamor because clamor is almost certainly within the midst of the conflict, within the midst of the heat of the moment. But slander could be in the heat of the moment where you take jabs at the person, you make sure you, you, you tell them uh, you know, certain insults, certainly carefully crafted words that will hurt the other person. Uh, But also slander can take place outside of the heat of the moment, right? Where you kind of just from a distance, you know, shoot missiles at that person where, oh, did you you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about our conflict? Oh, we need to pray for so-and-so. And you make sure that you paint the person in the worst possible light. It's slander. It's slander, saying things about another person that, that portray them in a negative kind of way. Uh, you know, basically the rule of thumb is that uh, if, if, if you can't say anything, saying anything negative about the person that's not for their good, then almost certainly it's slander. In other words, there is a context and a place where you have to open up about somebody else's dirty laundry, but it should be in the context, I'm seeking help, I need to know how to help this person. Okay? But if it's not for their good, then it's almost certainly slander. And then... This last word that he mentions here at the end of verse 31, along with all malice. This is just kind of a broad catch pan category of general evil. Okay, general evil in the context of, of a relationship. You know, this would you know, be the, the person who goes to the extent of slashing somebody else's tires. They're just doing evil to get back at that person because the way in which they have been sinned against. And all of this assumes the posture of placing yourself in the position of being the jury, the judge, and the executioner. That you have your own kind of due process in which you 
calculate the offenses that have been done against you and you have your own courtroom in which you deliberate and you punish other people who cross you. And Now, obviously, God Himself is a judge. But that's not the way in which we're to imitate God. (laughs) Because you see, God the Almighty as the perfect judge has infinite knowledge and the ability to execute perfect justice. And you don't. You think you do, but you don't. You don't know everything. You don't know. Now, again, that's not to say that there's not a place for uh, you know, a, a criminal civil court system in which we can bring forth grievances and try to get some semblance of justice in this world. But the reality is, is that ultimate justice is not for this life. It's for the next one. And we have no place trying to take the place of God as judge and sitting behind the bench and holding bitterness in our hearts and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and all malice and trying to execute that justice in personal revenge against others. That's not the way in which we are to image Almighty God. And so, friend, I ask you, is that a typical posture in your life? Are you known as an angry person? A hothead? Then change needs to take place. Or are there certain contexts which you find yourself in the repeated patterns of anger? It's not unfrequent for people to say, well after they've had several children in the home, I never used to be an angry person. (laughs) Well, if you have little ones stomping on your idols, it hurts. (laughs) And so there's certain contexts in which our anger may be more manifest than others, but however we're seeing it, and it's not manifesting the righteousness that is found in God. It needs to be put off. Now, if you were with us a couple of days ago, you understand there is a difference between righteous anger. There is a place for righteous anger. When you are concerned about God's kingdom, God's purposes, God's reputation... When it's against actual sin because sin is an offense against a holy God, there's a proper and appropriate place for righteous indignation. Yet, that that needs to be filtered through, Paul says in verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. It's not allowed to manifest itself in sinful means, but, but just as I mentioned earlier with the Apostle Paul, when he's in Athens, he's provoked within him as he sees the idolatry, but he doesn't take a baseball bat and start wailing on people's domes. He starts speaking the Gospel. He starts telling people about Jesus. He uses righteous means, but it's motivated by a very righteous anger. But if we're honest with ourselves... Most of our anger is not related to being concerned about God's kingdom, God's reputation. It's about me and my kingdom and my reputation. 
And so we need to put off this bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. But then what are we to put on? And this, this again, this is biblical change here. Not all change is biblical change. I think it was Jay Adams who asked the question, when does a thief cease to be a thief? And the common answer is what? Well, when he stops stealing. But that's not biblical change according to the Bible. In biblical change, we see in verse 28, let him who steals, steal no longer. Rather, he must labor, working with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to give to those who have need. In other words, it's not just about stopping stealing. It's about getting a job and being generous with others. That, that's, the, that's the route of genuine biblical repentance. Well, in a similar way, the route of biblical change when it comes to anger, wrath, bitterness, malice, and all this, here's the positive. This is what the, the, the older writer said. This is what vivification looks like. This is the putting on of righteousness. As you mortify the negative, put it to death, you need to bring to life the positive by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. What does it look like? Verse 32, here's the positive. Be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. And of course, this kindness begins to image God in the way in which we're supposed to image Him. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 7 in the midst of this jugular passage. You you, you know verse 8. You've memorized it. You've probably memorized verse 1 and 2. and This classic text on God's saving grace towards the sinner. And notice in verse 7 he gives us a window into his purpose and intention in showering this grace upon his own. He says, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing, uh, surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So when Paul summarizes why God is doing all this saving business on planet earth that he's purposed from before the foundation of the earth where he's taking dead sinners and making them alive and showering them with grace and bringing them into his family, he says this is all so that in the ages to come God might show forth the riches of his kind riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That all of this is summarized that God is a kind God. And we are to image him in that kindness. That seeking to do good to those who don't deserve it. That's God's disposition towards us. And that is to be our disposition towards others. Doing good, being helpful, being kind, even to those who don't deserve it. And we see this also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6 and verse 35. He says, But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, when you do this kind of kindness and love towards your enemies, you're you're demonstrating this is is what God's offspring look like. And God's able to look at your life and say, that's my boy. 
He looks just like me. And then he goes on to say, in Luke 6.35, For you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. I love that. God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. He's kind towards those who aren't kind back to Him. Who aren't grateful. He shows kindness and we complain. And yet He still shows kindness. And He says, that's how I want you to imitate Me. That's how I want you to image Me in this fallen world. It's a characteristic of God Himself. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God that spills all over humanity. It does. God is kind to ungrateful and evil people. He's kind in His common graces, right? I mean... Philosophers often ponder what they call the problem of pain in this world. That, that, that there's so much suffering in this world. But if, if we're thinking straight, the problem is not pain in this world. The real problem is pleasure in this world. How is it that us rebels against Almighty God who shake our fist at the Creator continue to experience pleasure from His hand? It's a wonder. It's a wonder we're not all incarcerated in hell, enduring His pain forever and ever. The real shock is that there's pleasure in this world. And He extends it. He douses it out in His common graces all over humanity. He douses it out through friendships, through food, through sunshine, through flowers blooming in the spring. He douses it out everywhere. But in a more particular way, He douses it out. And this is what we see here in Ephesians. Through His special grace. Through sending His own Son on the cross. And His tremendous overture of kindness towards rebels like you and I. And the Apostle Paul here is saying, be kind. And it's fascinating, the verb he uses here is, is actually become kind. The assumption is that we're not kind as we ought to be. We're not imaging Him as we ought to in this area. But we need to be moving in that direction. But that's not the first positive put on here. The second one is to be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. This word is, is more emotive, right? Uh, it, it carries the idea of compassion upon others, to feel for them, to feel with them and feel for them in such a way that you want and long for their good. Uh, this is wonderfully illustrated with Jesus when he's walking along the road in Luke chapter 7 and he approaches the gate of a city and there's a funeral taking place. 
There's a dead man being carried out. And Jesus looks at this funeral and He sees that this man, this dead person, is the only son of His mother. And she's a widow. And there's a large crowd coming out with this funeral procession. And the text says in 7.13, Then the Lord saw her and felt compassion for her. And he says to her, do not weep. He comes and he touches the coffin and the pallbearers stop. And he says to the young man, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus saw this woman's predicament. In a world like that, this young man as her only son was, was basically her only means of financial support. This woman would be utterly destitute. And he sees this woman grieving over the loss of her son and he has compassion on her. He's tender-hearted. He's moved emotively to do something for her in kindness. And he does. Now, we don't have the ability to break up funerals. But, by God's grace, we do have the ability to feel with sinners like our Savior did. He understood the realities of living in a fallen world where women grieve the loss of their only son. He knows the reality of being sinned against. He knows the reality of being betrayed, being hurt, being wounded, being unjustly accused. He knows the reality of living in this fallen world and He demonstrated tremendous compassion towards sinners and sufferers. And He calls us to image Him in that kind of way. Friends, in our polarized world, it's growing increasingly easy to become hard-hearted and more difficult to be tender-hearted. Because the way in which the media wants everything to be seen as there's the good guys and there's the bad guys. And the bad guys are out there and they don't vote the same way you do, they don't believe the same way you do. And Friends, we are all related in Adam. We're all born of the same cloth. But some of us, by God's grace, have a new representative in Christ and a new image that we are to bear. But we still need to have compassion towards one another in the immediate context of of other fellow new creatures, but also in the context of the fallen world around us. To try to feel with and for other fellow sinners and sufferers. So on a scale of 1 to 10, where would your compassion measure at this morning? Are you kind of 
at a chilly three, an ice cold zero. Lord Jesus is at a perfect ten. He could perfectly feel for other suffers. And this motivated him to action. And this is when we're feeling rightly about other fellow sufferers, it motivates us to seek to do good towards them. And notice all these, these, this kind of triad here of kindness, tenderheartedness, and now we'll look at forgiveness. All of these are, are dispositions of benevolence in imaging the Creator. Benevolence, seeking to do good and to feel good for our fellow humans. But notice this last one. <clears throat> Forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. It's, it's a verb here. And it's, it's a verb. It's actually the verb form of grace. And so this is the idea to grace others. To grace one another. Now it includes the, the idea of forgiveness, but it's, it's actually broader than that. I mean, grace is, is clearly in the Scriptures God's idea of grace towards the guilty, of absolving the guilt of others. It includes the idea of forgiveness, but it, but it encompasses a, a kind of disposition of grace towards others. And this is a, notice the, the reciprocal nature of this forgiveness or this gracing one another. We are to grace each other. That there is to be an atmosphere of gracious disposition towards one another in the body of Christ. And again, it assumes that we are going to be sinned against. It assumes that sometimes we're going to be snappy at one another. That sometimes we're going to be unkind towards one another. Sometimes we are going to sin against one another. And when that happens, we are to aim for a disposition of blanketing others' sins with grace. Now, sometimes people say, well... I can forgive, but I ain't going to forget. But the reality is, is that, again, when we think this is a disposition of grace, that, the, that it's the tenor and tone and attitude of the heart that wants to, to be kind and generous towards another who sinned against us. But, but forgiveness in the Bible really is a promise to forget. Not, not in the sense that we can, you know, have a, a data chip that we can hit the delete button on and never remember what this other person did. But, but, but that we don't let that sin come between our relationship. Remember, the idea of bitterness is you're, you're reminding yourself over and over of, of your old boo-boos. You're, you're savoring the pain. But, but, but forgiveness is a promise to not do that. Uh, Ken Sandy has defined forgiveness. Forgiveness is a promise to not allow that sin to come between you in such a way that you bring it up to the other person, to other people, or to yourself. 
It's a promise to not allow that sin to come between you in such a way that you bring it up to the other person, to other people, or to yourself. It it's, could be summarized with Jeremiah 31-34, the promise of the new covenant, where God says, and I will forgive their iniquity, and what? And remember their sin no more. And, and again, God obviously is omniscient, so it's not the idea of God you know, checking out His omniscience when it comes to our sin, but it's the idea He's not going to act upon that knowledge of what we've done towards Him. And so in a similar way, our forgiveness of others does not act upon the, the knowledge of that sin. We don't allow it to come between our relationship. Well, you may also ask, well, Matt, why should I forgive? I'm glad you asked that question because Paul tells us in verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Just as. That phrase there, it could be taken as a comparative, or it could be taken as a causal. I take it to be a causal, that the fuel that drives the engine of kindness, tender-hearted forgiveness towards others is fueled here with the Gospel. Namely, that God in Christ has forgiven you. I, I think he, he, he uses this causal uh, early, actually at the very beginning of Ephesians when he says in, in 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the next phrase in verse 4 is just as. So here's a command in, in verse 3, bless God, praise Him. And then verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The just as is causal. Why should you bless God? Why should you praise Him? He's chosen you even though you don't deserve it. And so in a similar way here, why should you forgive? Why should you have this disposition of grace and kindness? He says, just as because God in Christ has forgiven you. God has been kind to you. God has been tender-hearted towards you. God has taken the cursor and dragged it across all of your sins and hit the delete button. And there's no undo. There's no undo that He kind of holds. Well, I can hit the undo button and pull them back up. And they'll reappear. And then I see them again. I'm going to punish you. No. They've all been put on the back of the blessed Savior who walked to Calvary's hill with that cross upon His back and was suspended between heaven and earth with nails driven in His hands. And all of your big mountain-sized landfill of sin was strapped to His back. And He paid for it in full so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins. Not one of them still counted against you in the judgment. 
so that you could say with the Apostle Paul, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So then that motivates you to move forward with a disposition when you're sinned against. You remind yourself, I am a forgiven sinner. So God has extended kindness and forgiveness towards me. I can extend it towards my fellow sinner. Jesus gives that parable that helps us to understand this, right? Remember that in Matthew chapter 18 where no doubt Peter thought he was coming out with an outrageous kind of number when Jesus talks about forgiveness and Peter says, you know, you know, should we give them for, for should we forgive them up to seven times, you know, and, and surely Peter's thinking, I'm a very forgiving person. You know, throw out that number seven, you know, and Jesus says seven times seventy. And, and I don't think by that we're to understand, well, you know, once you hit four hundred and ninety-one you know, then comes out the punishment, you know. No, it's, it's that our forgiveness is to be complete and generous. And then Jesus goes on to give that parable. You remember the parable? It's in Matthew 18, 21 and following. Peter said to him, Lord, how often shall, I, uh, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus says, I do not say up to you seven times, but 70 times seven. For this reason, he says in verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now you all know how much 10,000 talents is, right? One talent was worth 15 years of wages. Now just think about that for a moment. Think about how much you made last year. Multiply that times 15. And then multiply that times 10,000. That is an enormous sum of money. Now, according to my vast research with a Google search, not Google, I'm sorry, DuckDuckGo, The median household income in the United States of America in 2019 was $68,703. Now again, think about that. So if you, if you did 15 years of wages, so that number times 15, and then times 10,000, you're talking $10.3 billion. What's the point here? In case you're, you don't quite understand this parable, that is your debt before God. You have a, an outrageous amount of money that you owe that you couldn't in thousands of lifetimes pay off. You are at the utter mercy of the King of Kings to cancel your debt. And he, and he does. The text says he does. And in verse 25, he, he, he cancels the debt. But do you remember as the parable goes on, he finds somebody who owes him a hundred denarii. Which a denarii was a day's wages. So about a hundred days wages versus 
15 years, day, 15 years of wages times 10,000. So this man owes him 100 denarii and he starts choking. You don't owe me money. Get in the debtor's prison. And keep in mind, in those days, you know, you know, in our day and age, the repo man comes and he comes to, to take back the car that's not actually yours because you haven't finished paying it off. And, and, you know, he comes and takes the car away. Well, the repo man in this day, he didn't come to take the car. He did take the car, but he took you with him. And you were in debtor's prison. <laughs> For however many years, you needed to work off that debt. And so this man who owes him a hundred denarii is thrown into debtor's prison. And do you remember how Jesus ends that parable? says the king is moved with anger and takes the man who was unforgiving of the hundred denarii, hundred day wage debt who had been forgiven the $10.9 billion debt and he has him, he says, hand him over to the tortures until he should repay all that he was owed my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. From your heart. What's the point? Forgiven people are forgiving people. Forgiven people are forgiving people. It's those who do not know and understand the great forgiveness of their debt before Almighty God who don't have a disposition of forgiveness towards others. I heard a story recently of a pastor who had authored several books in the Netherlands. And he went into a local bookstore and he wanted to check out some of his books with what price they were listing them at. So he goes over to the section where books that he's authored are and he picks one up and looks at the back. And the owner of the bookstore says, oh, do you know the, the author of that book? And the man who is the author of that book says, well, yeah, actually I do. So, oh, yeah, he's... The seller says, he, he's a fine author. He, he writes very, very many helpful books. And the pastor says, oh, you, you know the author. Oh, yes, I know the author. Well, the pastor couldn't take it anymore. He said, you don't know the author. If you knew the author, you would know that I'm the author. And when I walked in, you would have recognized me. Friend, if you don't have a disposition of forgiveness... Could it be you don't know the author? You've never met him. You've never come to realize your $10.9 billion debt against holy God that He has placed upon the back of Jesus so that you would be forgiven of all your sin. Friend, if you... See that your life is filled with unforgiveness and bitterness. Go to the Gospel. Go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Find forgiveness for your unforgiveness. But also find motivation to radically repent of your unforgiving heart. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, for the unforgiving heart, the Lord's prayer is like a death sentence. Let me think about that. 
Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. So, God, forgive me for some sins, but the really big ones, make sure you, you punish me for those. That's what we're saying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. It assumes that God's people are forgiving people. Let me give you just a, uh, some quick help. If you find yourself with a heart of, of unforgiveness, let me give you some help here. Renounce unrealistic expectations and conditions for your forgiveness. Sometimes, you know, you just kind of look, and look, let me just wait and see if they're really repentant. Then, then I'll extend grace to them. Renounce those unrealistic expectations. Secondly, realize how you may have sinned and contributed to the conflict. Remember Matthew 7? Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? He says, first take the speck that is, uh, or the log that is in your own eye, and then you will be able to see the speck that is in your brother's eyes. Take the log out of your own eye first. See your own sin. Third, replace wrong thinking with right thinking. Wrong thinking with right thinking. We often go through the kind of comparison. Well, my sin against them was only like probably 10%, and theirs was 90%. So, you know, they're just going to have to come to me and ask forgiveness. It's not how it works. You need to think rightly about your sin. You have the $10.9 billion debt before Almighty God. Your sin is great and you need to own whatever sin you've committed. Also, you need to understand God's forgiveness just as we've been saying here. If you really believe that you have an eternal debt, a landfill of sin that stinks to high heaven that you have accumulated before Almighty God and God has covered that land full of sin with His grace and mercy and forgiven you of it all, if you really believe that, if you're really thinking about that, friend, your heart will be warm and tender-hearted with the disposition of forgiveness towards others. You need to think rightly. Fourth, replace wrong speech with right speech. If you've made that promise of forgiveness, start speaking like you've made that promise. Luke 6, 27, 28, But I say to you, you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Start praying for the person who's wronged you. Replace wrong actions with right actions. Begin to treat the person with kindness and grace. Sometimes it takes a while for our emotions to begin to line up with our actions. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let me close with the story of Ruth Youngman. It was in 1963 that her brother was murdered. Many years went by and she had to work on her own heart with her own disposition of hatred towards this man who took the life of her 
beloved brother. He wound up serving 18 years in prison. But about 20 years later, 1983, Ruth Youngman decided she wanted to seek out the man who murdered her brother. She found him as a, working as a farm hand on a small farm in a rural area. She explained to him who she was and that he had murdered her brother 20 years ago. And Ruth Youngman was there to represent Christ to this man and to extend a hand of forgiveness to him. And the man was remorseful over what he had done. He was apologetic and confessing his sin. And she extended grace to him. Well, her father, whose son had been murdered 20 years prior, was sick and was dying. And she wanted this convicted murderer to see her father. And he did. And this father also, in the same way that his daughter did, extended the grace of forgiveness towards this murderer. Years later, this man would stand up at a prison fellowship banquet and say, Christians are the only people I know that you can kill their son and they will make you part of their family. He went on to say, I yet don't know the man upstairs, but he seems to be hounding me. Friends, we want to represent and image this great Creator motivated by the Gospel with a disposition of kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness towards those around us. May the Lord help us. Lord God Almighty, we thank You for this challenge from Your Word this morning. We desperately need Your